pray with me? Father God, I uh, put in your hands this time. I put into your hands the preparation that preceded it. May it be truthful. May it honor you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you heard our gospel reading this morning. Poor Thomas. Thomas really has a valid gripe by modern standards. He was one of the twelve, right? One of the important ones. He had been with Jesus since the beginning. And yet, almost nothing is recorded about Thomas in the Scriptures. There are four phrases that he speaks that are in the Scriptures. And what little there is casts him in a bad light. Especially true in today's Gospel reading, isn't it? Today's Gospel reading gives us two phrases that are common in the English language. At least they used to be. One of them is that phrase, seeing is believing. The other one is the phrase, doubting Thomas. That must hurt. He gets a bum rap, really. I'll try to explain to you why. He makes maybe the most powerful confession of who Jesus is in all of Scriptures, and nobody calls him Confessing Thomas. They call him Doubting Thomas. But the simple fact is, all of the disciples, every last one of them, doubted the resurrection at first. Thomas was not unique. He just wasn't there for the early appearances. Does it surprise you that all the disciples doubted the resurrection? It's recorded that Jesus told His disciples again and again that He was going to be killed, crucified, and He would rise again. You can read it in Matthew 17, 22. When they came together in Galilee, He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and on the third day He will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Luke 9.20 But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone, not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And he said it at other times too. And you know, surprisingly, in the light of this, among the many charges that skeptics use to try to, uh, to dismiss the story of the resurrection, the account of the resurrection, are two common themes. One is, oh, back then everybody was so gullible, they'd believe anything. And the other one is, well, in the whole account, it was just made up. They just, 
you know, it, yeah, it was a good story and it kind of validated them. So they, they made it up. The record of how Jesus' disciples responded to the first accounts of the resurrection really put all of that to the lie. Here's how. Consider this. If you're going to make all this stuff up, and you were a leader of the church in the first century, would you have made yourself or allowed anyone else to make you look this bad? Seriously. If you're making the whole story up, and you're the leader of the church, you're going to let them write that? Can't you just see... The Apostle Paul, looking over John Mark as he's writing out the Gospel of Mark, and tradition says that, that Mark was a protege of Peter. I'm sorry, did I say Paul? Peter. Peter's looking over Mark's shoulder going, I don't think I'd write that. Can you, can you, that makes me look so bad. Can you cross that part out? And in my mind, if, if this ever were to happen, I can just see John Mark turning around going, but you told me it happened like that. Well, yeah, I guess it did. All right, leave it in. Really? The part where, right after that confession of, of Christ, uh, Peter takes him aside and says, Lord, don't talk like that. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Can that part be left out, please? That doesn't make me look good. What about all the time that Jesus looked at these leaders of the church and said, Oh, you guys are so little faith. How much longer do I have to put up with you? Why would you include that? Unless, unless it happened? Unless it really happened? And to leave it out would be leaving out part of the story that was important. What leaders would allow themselves to look so very bad unless it really happened exactly that way? Who were the first people at the tomb on Sunday morning? Yeah, if you're going to make this stuff up. Who's number one there, right? The ladies, the women, Mary Magdalene and a couple other women. You know what? And I'm sorry, ladies, but in the first century, the testimony of women was not held with any esteem or account and I don't believe they could testify in a court of law at all. So if you're going to make up this story from scratch, you're going to have the women be the first ones to find the empty tomb? In that culture? In that time? I don't think so. So why would you do it? Could it be because it really happened that way? And that to have said it differently would be lying? Could that be what's behind it? Okay, so what were the women going there to do? They knew what Jesus had said. They knew the, the, the same things the disciples said, that He's going to be killed and in three days He was going to rise. What were they going that morning to do? To embalm Him. 
Jesus was crucified on Friday. The Sabbath started at sundown. There wasn't time to wrap his body in the normal spices that would be done. So these ladies, out of their dedication, out of their commitment to him, were going to put the spices so that his decaying body wouldn't smell so bad. Hardly faith, is it? Not at this point. And then Mary Magdalene sees the empty tomb. And she assumes what? Somebody's stolen his body. And turning away from the tomb, she sees somebody standing there. Maybe it's his te- her tears. Maybe it's... Who knows? But she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. She assumes it's the gardener. And she says, where have they taken his body? Do you know where it is? I'll go find it. It never occurred to her at this point that he'd been raised from the dead. Then there's these two guys. They're walking to Emmaus. And they're downcast and they're sad and they were disciples of Jesus, not one of the tw- not among the twelve, but disciples. And they're just discussing how awful it was and, and what are they thinking and, and, and what's going on and how could they keep on going like this? And they're joined by a third person. And the Scripture tells them that only when He broke bread and began to pass it to them did they realize that that third person was Jesus. Here's what they said to Him, not knowing it was Jesus yet. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find His body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said. But him we did not see. They did not see. And then he, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And Scripture says that he then explained about how again and again the Scripture said that Messiah must suffer and would be raised again. So these two guys go back to Jerusalem and they tell the disciples that they had seen Jesus. And guess what? These great men of faith didn't believe them. Mark 16, 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. Remember, Mark is kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of many of the stories. These returned and reported it to the rest But they didn't believe them either. All right, guys. I want you to meet the leaders of your first century church. But they didn't believe the story of the resurrection at first. Really? Does that inspire confidence in your leadership? And yet they allowed these things to be written. Why? Because they happened. And even if it made them look bad, it was still truth. And they wanted the truth to be told about Jesus. And about them.
Now, I... Well... You can see that it doesn't really read like the story was made up. You can also see that the disciples weren't exactly gullible either. Quite the opposite. They didn't want to believe it. They were realists. They knew that Jesus had died. They either had witnessed it or they'd heard the accounts. They knew that dead people tended to stay dead. Unless there was a miracle. And the one person they had ever seen raise the dead was the guy who was dead now. I don't want to be too hard on the disciples. They were terrified. They were terrified that they were going to be next. That's why Scripture says they met behind locked doors. They're devastated. They had risked everything for three years. They had followed this man. They had left their families. They had left their professions. They were believing in him. They were believing that he held the future in his hands. He was believing that they were believing rather that because of Jesus, everything was going to be different. And then he's crucified. And it was devastating. They were still trying to wrap their minds around the fact that he was gone. When the word began to filter down that maybe he wasn't gone after all. I had a friend that worked in AIDS ministry with AIDS patients. And he described... Because I knew him at the time when all of a sudden they, they came out with a cocktail that allowed AIDS patients to live for 10, 20, 30 years. Where it had been a death sentence. You had weeks or months, maybe a year. And he described sitting around a table with some AIDS patients who had to wrap their minds around the idea that maybe they were going to live for a while. And it was hard for them to do that. Because all of their focus had been on getting stuff ready, getting stuff ready, because they were going to die. It was like this, only bigger. All of their hopes had been in this Christ. All of their hopes had been in this Jesus. And then all of their hopes got wiped out, devastated, gone, destroyed. They're thinking, what did I spend three years following Him for? Then somebody says, you know, I saw angels and they said, he wasn't dead. No, man, come on, don't tell me that. You guys read the Chronicles of Narnia, the dwarves? The dwarves are for the dwarves. No one's going to take us in. No one's going to trick us again. Would they dare to hope again? After their hopes were dashed. Then at least ten of the surviving eleven were gathered behind locked, closed doors. 
And Thomas wasn't among them. Maybe his grief was too great. Maybe there was something he was off he had to do, but he wasn't there. So he didn't see what they saw. John twenty nineteen, just the passage before the one that we read for the gospel reading. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, He showed them His hands and His side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus showed them His hands and His side. Thomas wasn't there. But he heard about it. So what was it that enabled the ten to believe? Maybe they're starting to head that way. But then it became undeniable. So they weren't gullible. They weren't waiting for an opportunity to imagine that somehow everything was okay after all. Quite the contrary. They didn't want to believe. They were genuine skeptics of the resurrection. Until... Until they're enabled to believe again. Hardly a great advertisement for the faith and conviction of the leaders of the early church, is it? So why write an account like this? Why include this stuff? You know, if I were going to write this and make it up, well, yeah, we remembered what Jesus had said about rising on the third day, so we were sitting outside the tomb just waiting, checking our watches, going, I wonder what's keeping them. And then He appeared, hey, we've been waiting for you, Jesus. It's not the account they wrote. Perhaps they wrote it like this because it really happened. But Thomas wasn't there. He hadn't seen what they had seen. He hadn't heard what they had heard. He was still like they were before Jesus appeared to them. Doubting. He needed evidence that was beyond mere words. And so then the passage we read today. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up and... Thomas's reaction when they told the story to him. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, they're gathered again. This time, this time Thomas is with them. John 20, and this is the passage we read today. A week later, his disciples were, with, were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas must have been shocked. Shocked. 
Not only is Jesus standing there in front of them, Jesus knew what he'd said. How'd that happen? How did Jesus know? Scripture doesn't say whether Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds or not. But Thomas makes what I think is the strongest confession of faith found in Scriptures. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, blasphemy for a Jew, unless Jesus is God. And tradition strongly, unanimously says that Thomas was faithful to the end and died a martyr's death bringing the gospel to India. You may be familiar with Jesus' response to Thomas' confession. You heard it. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It was the evidence of Jesus' physical body that he needed to be able to believe. And Jesus said, blessed are those who can believe without having such direct evidence. You know, most of what we believe in our world, we have no direct evidence for. At least in terms of the facts of history. In my college years, there was a time when my faith either slipped away or got thrown away. I'm not sure which. And I spent about one horrible year really taking in the fact, well, to me it was a fact, that if there is no God, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no right, there is no wrong. There's just survival and why. Who cares? It was horrible. And I thought it was an intellectual denial. I thought it was all of the arguments that I'd heard in college. And then I asked myself, what evidence would I accept to confirm that God was real and that Jesus was the Christ? And I thought about all kinds of things and dismissed every last one of them. No, I wouldn't accept that. No, that could be faked. No, no, that could be a trick being played on me. No. And finally it dawned on me. There wasn't any evidence that I would accept. And yet I accepted so many things that my culture told me were true, and most of them probably are. I really do believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, even though I've seen no direct evidence of it personally. So why is it that I could accept all of these things on indirect evidence, but I wanted direct evidence from God, and even then I would have dismissed it? That's when I realized it wasn't an intellectual dismissal. It was an emotional dismissal. And I used the intellect to defend it. The real issue for me was that believing would require obeying. 
which was part of our epistle reading today, one of the themes there. So, maybe a couple among us have come here today as a skeptic, a doubter, a questioner, either openly or secretly. So let me, let me ask you, if you're one of those people, what evidence would be enough for you to convince you that Jesus is who He claimed to be? Messiah and Lord. What evidence would be enough to satisfy you today? Have you ever thought about it in those terms before? I kind of think most people haven't. How much evidence would be enough? And if you've got an image in your mind, if you've got a picture in your mind, if you've got some words in your mind, yeah, okay, that would do it. Let me ask you, is it a reasonable or is it a considerably, maybe ridiculously greater amount of evidence than you require for most of the other facts that our culture says are true and that you accept is true? If you challenged everything in the history books the way you challenge whether or not Jesus is God, would you believe anything at all? Could you ever believe in Jesus without seeing Him in person, without touching His wounds in His hands, or putting your hand into the wound in His side? And if you could do that, would you even believe it then? Blessed, indeed, are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let me ask you to ponder these questions for just a little bit.